So here, here's what we'll do. What I think we'll do is, let me, let me read the passage for us uh, that we wanna spend our time in this morning, and then we'll pray. And then um, we'll talk about how we're gonna approach this text and how we're gonna spend the next few minutes together. Uh, so let me read from Isaiah chapter 57. We'll read verses 15 through 19. It says this. For this is what the high... An exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. Okay, so God is about to speak here, okay? And this is what God says. He says, I live in a high and a holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and hid my face in anger. Yet they kept on in their willful ways. I have seen their ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. So Father, we come to you uh, this morning and we've already been worshiping you through song and through prayer and through a dedication of, of my child. And I pray that we would continue to worship you now, even as we open up the scriptures. I ask that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, O oh God. I ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word and that through the scriptures and the spirit who applies them to our life, you would bear much fruit for Jesus' sake in our lives in the weeks and in the months and in the years to come. We'll pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. And we said together, amen, amen. So when we moved down to Dallas uh, from Northern Virginia, um, we had a two and a half year old and a one year old. So it was just Liam and Liv at the time. And so we only had one car with us when, when we got down there uh, because I thought we were gonna be living really close um, to the school. Uh, but once we got down there, we realized that the apartment that we had rented, you know, sight unseen, um, was about five or six miles away from the school. And I realized that, man, I, I, I kind of have got to go back and forth from school sometimes several times throughout the day. And some days I'm gone all day studying in the library and that left Carrie without a vehicle. So when we got down there, we said, you know what, this isn't going to work. We've got to get a second car. And I thought, man, I've always wanted a convertible since the time I was a kid, you know, I just pictured myself driving down the road, top down, you know, wind in my hair kind of thing. And I thought, man, this is a great opportunity to just buy like a cheap used convertible that I've always wanted. So I went and I found one and I picked it out and it wasn't anything, you know, elaborate, but it was just a cool black convertible. And I was driving that for about two weeks. And one morning, Carrie said, I think I'm pregnant. And that was with our little Quinn. So two weeks after that, I traded the convertible in for the dreaded minivan. <laughs> I drove that thing for about 30 days. 
And that's all I had. And I traded it in for the minivan. In fact, for a little while, I uh, was telling some friends at home, I said, man, you're not going to believe it. I, I got a mini. And they were like, you got a mini? I was like, yeah, a minivan, not a mini Cooper. Um, and it always amazes me how messy the inside of that minivan can get. I don't know if you've got kids and if you have a minivan, and I blame it all on my kids. The outside of the van looks fine. It looks good. I mean, I just got to run that through the car wash and that thing is good to go. On the inside, it's a totally different story. I mean, you will find cookies crushed into the carpet, lollipops melting onto the seat. Carrie one time opened the back console and found a half-eaten roast beef sandwich. And we hadn't been to Arby's in months, okay? That thing was just sitting in there. And I blame it all on the kids. The outside of the van looks great, but the inside is a mess. You know, Israel's sin in the book of Isaiah and during Isaiah's time was mainly the sin of idolatry and greed. On the outside, they looked pretty good pretty religious, you might say. They looked like they had it all together, but on the inside, man, their hearts were far from the Lord. Their allegiances were misaligned. They had gone after other things and other gods to find joy and life and satisfaction. And on the inside, man, they were a mess. You know, it's often the subtle patterns of sin in our life that end up leading us to a place of spiritual brokenness. That's why Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he said that the entire life of believers in Jesus must be a life of repentance. I mean, here's the deal. Hopefully you know this. As followers of Jesus, if you're a person who has placed personal trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you are forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, and future. Colossians 2, 13 tells us that. You are accepted by God. You are loved. And simultaneously, you and I are capable of profound sinfulness. That's what Martin Luther meant when he said we need to live a life every day of repentance. And I really think that on the outside, maybe some of us this morning, certainly many of us sitting in the pews in the church today, on the outside, I think we look like we've got it together. But I think on the inside, many of us have let the subtle patterns of sin lead us to a place of spiritual brokenness. And I think our hearts, some of us, many of us, feel really far from the Lord this morning. And so if that's you, man, I'm so glad you're here because this passage offers so much hope and so much comfort to those who are in a place of spiritual brokenness over their sin. And maybe it's not a pattern of sin in your life right now, but maybe it's the guilt over past sin that has led you to a place where you feel broken on the inside. And what we're gonna see today as we look a little more closely at this text is we're gonna see three things. We're gonna see that God 
comforts the contrite by number one, he restores our fellowship. We'll show you these on the screen. The second thing we're gonna see in the passage is that God comforts us when we're broken and repentant, the contrite, because he revives our life. And then the third thing that we're gonna see in this passage is that God comforts the contrite because he renews our worship. So number one, he restores our fellowship. Number two, he revives our life. And number three, he renews our worship. So that's gonna kind of be our outline for the next few minutes. That's gonna be how we divide this passage. And of course, once we've observed all of those things, we're gonna make real practical, relevant application to our lives. So that's the plan. Y'all with me? I hope so. That's the only sermon I brought this morning. Everybody say, oh yeah. Okay, so I'll tell you what, let's read verse 15. Well, again, we'll show you this on the screen and then we'll stop and we'll do our first observation. So again, here's what God says. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. So stop there for a second and let's do number one, that God comforts us because he restores our fellowship. Now, here's what we have to understand about verse 15 and court, kind of this whole section in the book of Isaiah. It's totally unexpected for the reader of the book of Isaiah in the ancient Jewish community. If, if an ancient Jewish person is reading the scroll of Isaiah, they get to chapter 57, verse 15. It's totally unexpected because throughout the whole book of Isaiah, there's been an equation that you see repeated over and over again. Here's the equation. The equation is God is holy. His people are sinful and wayward, and so judgment is coming. This has been the pattern of the book of Isaiah. It begins all the way back in chapter six in a passage that I'm sure many of you know. It's where Isaiah has this incredible vision of the holiness of God. Remember this passage? Isaiah sees the seraphim, these angels, and they're flying around and they're calling out to one another, what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. It's an incredible scene in Isaiah chapter six. Man, I'll never forget when I was down at Dallas Seminary, Chuck Swindoll um, some of you might know who he is. He's had a preaching ministry for decades. He's on the radio. He's the chancellor of Dallas Seminary. And one day uh, he would often preach at chapel. And so one morning, the, I mean, this little wooden chapel was just jam-packed with students because all the students wanted to come and hear Swindoll preach. And so one morning he opens up the scriptures and he's preaching from Isaiah chapter six. And what he does is he instructs the whole student body to stand up and he kind of splits us right down the middle and has this side face that side and that side face this side. And then he instructed this side to call out to the other side at the top of our voices, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And then this side responded and we kind of went back and forth, picture like a, a pep rally, if you will. And inside this wooden chapel, the acoustics were so loud, it sounded like we were in a stadium of 100,000 people. And there we are calling back and forth to one another like a roar 
in that room. And it really gave me a greater sense of the passage because what Isaiah says is that when one of these seraphim opened its mouth to call this out, it was thunderous. Isaiah says the threshold of the temple shook. And these angels are calling out to one another and Isaiah sees this vision of the holiness of God. And then what God does next is he commissions Isaiah. You know the passage, right? Lord, here am I, send me. And we love that passage, but most of us don't know what happens next. God says, okay, I'm gonna send you with a prophetic judgment that you're gonna pronounce against the people of Israel. Because again, the equation is God is holy His people are sinful and wayward, and so judgment is coming. This is the equation you see through the book of Isaiah. Now, fast forward to chapter 57, to our passage that we're looking at this morning. The beginning of chapter 57, we see the same pattern over again. It's talking about Israel's sin and idolatry. This time, the formula is reversed. It says, Israel is sinful and wayward. God is holy. And so the person reading the scroll of Isaiah must think, oh my goodness, I know what's coming next. Judgment is coming. How could I ever stand before this holy God? But what happens next is so surprising and so amazing because what God says is that he is holy, but he also dwells with those who are broken and contrite. And here comes God's hope to the broken sinner. The word contrite is the Hebrew word daka. It means to be crushed, but not to be like crushed into pieces. It means to be crushed into dust, like fine dust, right? So if you took a hammer or a mallet and you grab like a, you know, one of those clay pots that you put plants in and you just start to crush the pieces of that pot. It could probably take you, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so, but you could probably crush that pot into a bunch of pieces. That's not daka. If you really wanted to get the picture of what daka means, you'd have to sit there with that hammer and crush those pieces until all that was left is a pile of dust that you could just kind of blow on and it would just go out and start to fill the air. That's what it means to be contrite. That's the picture of this word here, to be crushed like dust, to be pulverized. Here's the thing, true biblical contrition is not that we're crushed over the consequences of our sin. Anyone in the world who doesn't know Jesus can be crushed by the consequences of their sin. Biblical contrition is that we're crushed and broken and repentant because we know we have sinned against a God that is holy and good and glorious and kind. And guys, if God is glorious to us, then our sin will be heinous to us. And when that becomes our posture before the Lord, he draws near and he restores intimate fellowship with the broken and with the contrite. So that's number one. God comforts the contrite because he restores our fellowship when we come to him crushed and broken. Amen? Let's do number two together. Second way that God comforts the contrite is that he revives our life. 
Let's pick it up in verse 15 again. So again, we've already seen this, but God says, again, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Watch this. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Verse 16, I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I have created. Stop there for a second. So not only does God come in and restore fellowship with those who are crushed and broken, but he comes in and he revives their life, meaning he lifts them up out of the ashes of their brokenness and he encourages and comforts in them in their innermost being. That's what it means when God comes in and revives those who are broken. You know, some of the most tender moments I've ever had with my kids is in the wake of me disciplining them. If you've got a kid, then you probably know what I mean. You know, they're, I've just disciplined them, but now they're on my lap and now I'm, I'm encouraging them and I'm talking gently to them and I wipe their tears and I hold them and I comfort them and I encourage them. And listen, here's the, I'm a sinful father. I'm an, un, I'm an imperfect father. How much more does a perfect and loving father comfort his children in the wake of their own brokenness and repentance? You know, I really think that some of us have such a misconception of God because we don't understand the fatherliness of God. And that might be because of your own sinful father who was broken himself. But in order to understand God and his love for us as his children, we've got to understand the fatherliness of God, particularly his fatherliness and tenderness towards us in the wake of our own sin. And, you know, Jesus gave us such a vivid picture, such a vivid image for us to understand the fatherliness of God. And, of course, that's in Luke chapter 15 in the story of the lost son. You know the story, the younger son comes to his father and he demands his portion of the inheritance, which was tantamount to saying, man, I wish you were dead, dad. Just give me my inheritance already. So the father gives him his inheritance and he goes to a foreign country and he spends it all on parties and prostitutes and he ends up in a place of unspeakable filth and brokenness. But here's what Jesus says next. Luke 15, verse 17. It says, but when he came to his senses, he said, I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. In other words, he was crushed by the weight of his own sinfulness. In fact, he didn't even feel worthy to be called his father's son. But look what happens next. Jesus goes on to say in verse 20 of Luke 15. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So here's the picture. The father sees his wayward son coming and rather than making him crawl 
in all his shame and guilt, the father takes off running down the road. And he gets to his son and he scoops him up and he embraces him. That's not all he does though. The father then throws a banquet for him, says, slay the fatted calf, bring out my robe. And then the father restores the son to his place in the family. And he bestows on him all of the blessings and privileges of sonship. Guys, look at me for a second. Do you understand that that story is meant to communicate to us the way God the Father sees his children in the wake of our sinful brokenness when we come to him repentant over our sin? He takes us and he embraces us and he restores us to our place in the family as a son or a daughter of the king. And we don't need to hate ourselves because of our sin. Hate your sin, but don't hate yourself. And you don't have to punish yourself and you don't have to pay some kind of penance to make up for your sin. You simply embrace his forgiveness and you let him restore your crushed and broken heart and revive your life. And that's what God does in man. He rushes in like a flood and he picks you up and embraces you and restores and revives your life. And that's number two. So finally, we've just got one more to look at. So let's look at number three. The third way that God comforts the contrite is that he renews our worship. We're gonna see that in verse 19, but let's get a running start uh, back in verse 18. So again, God says, I've seen their Ways, but I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating, watch this, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. So not only does God restore fellowship with the broken, he comes in and revives our spirit, but what we also see is that he produces in us a response of praise. That's what the verse means when it says he creates praise on their lips. Now notice the repeat in verse 19 of the word peace. It says peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord. That's the word shalom in Hebrew, which was used as a greeting. So this is sort of like a, a welcome back to that wayward sinful child, just like we see the picture in Luke chapter 15 as the father welcomes his wayward child home. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, does that move you at all this morning? That God, who is holy and righteous and perfect, and we who are sinful and wayward, that he would be merciful to undeserving sinners like us, that should create praise on your lips this morning. If you understand the gospel rightly, created praise on David's lips, Psalms 103, when David said, praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name and forget not all of his benefits. Watch this, who forgives all of your iniquity, who redeems your life from the pit. 
who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Man, if anyone understood that, King David understood that because God lifted him up out of the ashes of his own sinful brokenness and he put a new song of praise on David's lips. And I don't care how dark a place your soul has sunk to. He can redeem your life from that pit. He can bring the sun to shine again in your life. And he can put a new song of praise on your lips like David who said, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's number three. God comforts the contrite because he renews our worship. You can't, I mean, it is so hard to come to church when there is a pattern of unrepentant sin in your life, you can't worship. I mean, it betrays your own soul. But when we come to him in repentance, man, he revives that spirit of worship in us. And he puts a new song of praise on our lips. So let's just review real quick what we've seen this morning in our passage. We've seen that God moves towards the broken. And we said that to be crushed, to be contrite, means to be crushed like dust to be repentant and we come before the Lord, not because of our consequences of our sin, but because we've sinned against a God who is so good. And when we do that, he restores fellowship with us. He revives our life and he creates praise on our lips. But what I need to do before we move on to application is I got to show you the key to understanding this passage. So y'all with me? This will be the most important thing I say today. Remember that little word that we talked about, daka, to be crushed? Well, that little word shows up earlier in the book of Isaiah. It shows up in chapter 53 in a prophecy about a person called the suffering servant. It's a prophecy about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ some 700 years before Jesus was born. And there in verse five of chapter 53, here's what it says. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed, daka, pulverized for our iniquities. Friends, what we need to understand is that the hope and the comfort and the promise of chapter 57 is only possible because of what happened in chapter 53, namely the suffering servant. Because here's the deal. Not only did we need to be comforted in the wake of our own sin, we needed someone who was willing to put himself under the crushing weight of God's wrath for our sin so that you and I can be lifted up out of our own sinful brokenness. Not only did you and I need to have peace with God, we needed someone who was willing to take our punishment on himself so that we could have peace with God. Not only did you and I need to be healed of our sinful diseases, we needed someone who was willing to bear the stripes by which we could be healed. 
and the suffering servant, it goes on to say he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Friends, it's because he opened not his mouth that you and I today can open up our lips in praise because he opened not his mouth. Do you understand that? Amen? That's the key to our passage. That's the key to the book of Isaiah. That's the key to the whole Bible. And so we've seen our three points and just real quick, I've got two points of application and then I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna let you go this morning. But I've got two suggestions about how to apply this passage and the first is this, and we've already indicated this, but the first is we've gotta live a life of deep repenting. We've gotta live a life of deep repenting. The entire life of a Christian should be a life of daily repentance because we sin every day. There's reason to go before the Lord every day, every hour, in fact, with a posture of repentance before the Lord. One English Puritan pastor said, even our repentance needs repenting of. That sounds like a Puritan right there. But check this out. Not only do we need to repent of our unrighteousness, we need to repent of our self-righteousness. Let me say that again. Not only do we need to repent of our unrighteousness, we need to repent of our self-righteousness. For as many of us in the pews across the world today that are broken because of our own sinful unrighteousness, there are just as many who are broken because of their self-righteousness. And that's just as sinful before God. Now, the difficult thing is that it's easier to see your brokenness when it's the result of your unrighteousness. The unrighteous person who's broken, they're sitting in the pig slop. It's not hard to see. It's much more difficult to discern your self-righteous brokenness because you're not sitting in the pig slop. You're sitting in the pew on Sundays. The unrighteous person I'm sorry, the self-righteous person, they have religious devotion. They're always in church, but they have no real rejoicing in the Lord. The self-righteous person, man, they pray regularly. They pray regularly, but not with any real fervency. It's mainly petitions rather than praise. The self-righteous person, man, they know all the worship songs, but their hearts remain unmoved when they sing them. And the self-righteous person, man, they have their quiet time in the Lord every day, but it's out of duty, not out of the sheer beauty of what it means to commune with the living God. And I really think that there are more that there's a lot more self-righteous brokenness in our churches than we realize. And if that describes any of us this morning, then man, you're just as much in need to be contrite 
before the Lord so that he can come in and restore fellowship with you and revive your life and renew your worship. So we've got to live a life of deep repentance. Go back and read Luke 15 and the parable of the prodigal son because the interesting thing is that's really a parable about two lost sons. The younger brother is alienated from the father because of his unrighteousness. The elder brother is alienated from the father because of his self-righteousness. Go back and check out that parable. But we need to live a life of deep repentance. And then finally, second application and we're done. We need to live a life of deep rejoicing as well. So I'm not talking about, you know, asceticism here or, or just moping around in sackcloth and ashes. We need to live a life of deep repenting, but the other side of that coin is a life of deep rejoicing. I mean, we saw that in the passage. He creates praise on their lips. That's what the passage says. Every day, everywhere we go, a life of deep rejoicing. You say, Will, you telling me I'm walking in the middle of Walmart? And I need to be like rejoicing there in the aisle, busting out in song. Well, let me tell you, that wouldn't be the strangest thing I've ever seen in a Walmart before. But no, that's not what I mean. I mean the posture of your heart being one that rejoices in the Lord for the great mercy with which he has lavished on you. As undeserving as you and I are. That is cause for deep rejoicing Every single day, man. Back uh, years ago, before I went on staff at McLean Bible, I traveled in a band. Um, and so we kind of toured all over the country. And early on, when we had no money, later we had next to no money, but not much money anyway, we didn't have enough money to stay in hotels. So we would stay like in host homes, you know? So we'd go to conferences, we'd go to churches, play at youth groups and, th- and that kind of thing. So it was kind of like a, a Christian worship band. There was one time we were traveling on the West Coast and of course we didn't have enough money for a hotel. Someone ended up connecting us to a place to stay. And as we were going, we found out it was a rehab center, um, a Christian rehab center for, for uh, recovering drug addicts uh, for men. And I wasn't that excited about staying there, just to be honest with you. It was a little scary to me. Um, but we ended up having an amazing time with these guys. I mean, just a time of fellowship and times of just encouraging each other. We woke up one morning and they had created this breakfast buffet spread like I had never seen. And they were so proud to serve that to us. Uh, So we just had an incredible time for a few days with these guys. But one of the guys just really made an indelible mark on me. He just really stuck out to me. This guy you could just see in his eyes this, this deep rejoicing. And, and he loved to sing and he would just burst out in song in the middle of Walmart. I'm telling you right now, this guy was always singing while we were there. And here's what you have to understand. He had a terrible voice. I mean, awful. I mean, like cover your ears, cringe kind of voice, but he didn't care. He just loved to sing and praise the Lord. And I remember I was in tears one night as I was journaling about this guy and just how moved I was to see what kind of a life of deep rejoicing he had in his eyes. And it's because he understood what it meant to be in a place of unspeakable brokenness. 
he understood the depths of his own sinfulness and the greatness of God's mercy. He understood what it meant to have your life redeemed from the pit. And he couldn't help but live a life of deep rejoicing. And I remember writing in my journal, I think, or at least reflecting, as bad as his voice sounded to all of us, (laughs) that must have been the sweetest sound in the Savior's ears to hear his child rejoicing at God's great mercy towards him. Do we live a life of deep rejoicing? Do you live a life of deep rejoicing? David goes on to say in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. And David ends this psalm again, the way he started it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Guys, if your heart feels far from the Lord right now, if you look like on the outside, you've got it together this morning, but on the inside, you feel crushed and broken, whether it's, guilt over past sin or a pattern of sinfulness in your life now or some kind of sinful addiction or maybe your just heart has just grown callous over time and you feel far from the Lord. I really think that God is saying to you this morning through Isaiah chapter 57, with arms open, child, come to me in all of your brokenness and let me restore you. Let me revive you. Let me put a new song of praise on your lips. I wanna pray for us this morning. But I'm just gonna give you a few seconds to pray silently. If you have a prayer of confession to the Lord, or if you just want to pray a prayer of great rejoicing in God's mercy towards you this morning, go ahead and do that and then I'll pray and then I think we'll sing one more song together. And so, Father, I thank you this morning for your grace that is unrelenting. And it pursued us. Even in our utter rebellion against you, when we had no taste for spiritual things, And in our spiritual deadness, we were running from you. And your love pursued us and it wooed us 
and you drew us to yourself and you opened our eyes to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in believing, you gave us eternal life. But Lord, even as followers of Jesus, we know we are capable of great wickedness every day. 1 John 1, 9 tells us to confess our sin and you are faithful to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And those are those temporal consequences you forgive us from for you've already forgiven us for the eternal consequences because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this morning, Lord, I pray that for any of us who are in, I don't know, that place or on that way because of a pattern in our life, I pray that you would, again, that your mercy would warm to us and you would woo us back to yourself and that we would come repentant and crushed, that you would put a new song of praise on our lips as we consider the infinite mercy that extends to us through the cross of Jesus. Help us now, Lord, to stand and sing about your amazing grace, that we would live a life of deep rejoicing and that it would continue now or resume now as we sing corporately to you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. We thank you for your rich mercy. Amen.